Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, We got a great one today, you know, for a change. Norm Ornstein on the midterms and the wave that didn't happen. Norm, of course, has been my guest a number of times because unlike so many of my my other guests, he really knows what he's talking about. Norm, along with Tom Mann, has written a number of best-selling books on Congress, The Broken Branch. It's even worse than it looks. So for once, what you hear on the Al Franken podcast will not be useless blather. Wow. As of now, and I'm taping this on Friday, the 11th of November, we still don't know for certain who will control the Senate and not even certain about the House. You may have listened to my podcast last week with David Axelrod and Cecile Richards. If you did, you may have noticed that David, who is a great friend and a brilliant strategist and analyst, he he was very pessimistic and even chided Cecile and me because we were saying, hey, we don't know. And Cecile, of course, was talking about Dobbs, and we were talking about democracy. And as it turned out, my God, Cecile and I were were kind of right. And um, on Tuesday night, I texted uh, Axe and uh, chided him, and he said, yeah. As it turned out, both Dobbs and Uh, threats to democracy turned out to be big factors in what was an amazingly ahistorical midterm. Joe Biden did better in his midterm than any president in memory, if your memory goes back to 1934, any president other than FDR then in 34 and George W. Bush in 2002. And that was uh, because of 9-11 and, of course, uh, the war in Iraq that he misled us into, and that was a complete uh, disaster and tragedy. So, democracy. Last night, my wife, Franny, turned to me and said about the midterms, the American people said, stop it. If you've been listening to this podcast for the last few months, you've been hearing my growing alarm about the very survival of our democracy. You've probably heard me talk about the litany of turning points, Citizens United, the capture of state legislatures in states like Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in 2010, and their gerrymandering, Shelby County, all the clearly partisan decisions coming from a now totally illegitimate Supreme Court on voting rights, the authority of federal regulatory agencies like the EPA to regulate a ruling which contradicted a century of SCOTUS ruling, and, of course, Dobbs. So I was kind of freaked out going into these midterms. There were the number of election deniers who had been nominated by Republicans across the country for state, 
federal and, and local office, including nominees for secretary of state, armed men in masks, intimidating voters in Arizona, drop boxes. And then the absolutely disgusting reaction by a number of prominent, high-profile Republicans to the attack on Paul Pelosi. People like Donald Trump, of course, Ted Cruz, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, Tucker Carlson, okay, of course, Roger Stone, of course, Don Jr., Elon Musk, and so on, and so on. And that scared me. And I, I, I think you've heard me say recently that the tipping point for losing our democracy, that maybe that that had already been tipped. But thank God for this midterm. Something that really amazed me and delighted me was that these idiot asshole deniers who lost elections, that most of them, it seems, conceded. These are people who, for no reason, with no evidence, and all evidence to the contrary, had been vociferously claiming with absolute certainty that the 2020 election was stolen. And a lot of them, and often almost immediately said, oh, yeah, yeah, I lost. (laughs) I don't know what happened, why that happened, but because I went into Tuesday night really scared to death with these denier candidates for secretary of state and AG and, and governor that they, they could win. But I was also hoping for and holding out the real possibility that what actually did happen would happen, which is that the American people saying, stop it, stop it. Now with Donald Trump, we've been down this road before he had a very bad night But his supporters, not anywhere near a majority or a plurality of Americans, but they are still rabidly MAGA, not a small percentage of QAnon, and still maybe a majority of Republicans. So, okay, Norm and I uh, discuss all this stuff. Now, one last thing before I, I say it's a great one for a change. We do have the runoff in Georgia. You've heard me talk about Unite Here, the hospitality unions. They've been on the ground in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, and in Arizona this cycle. And I've asked you to support them, and you have. They are headed to Georgia. During the last runoffs alone, they knocked on over a million doors in Georgia. The state legislature, of course, has shortened the time between the election and the runoffs. but. Uh, Unite Here is in Georgia now. They'll be on the doors, and I'd love for you to help them. Unitehere.org slash Franken. By the way, uh, we have raised over $400,000 for them this cycle, and it's uh, hard to imagine anything more important right now than the Georgia runoff. Okay, uh, we got Norm Ornstein. This is really a great one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10 minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts 
to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Norm in the USA. We've got Norm Ornstein in the USA. Remember that, Norm? I still have one of my deep regrets is that uh, we couldn't get Bruce Springsteen to record it. But I'll take it from you. Yeah. Those were halcyon days. You know, if I had Bruce Springsteen, you know, I asked him a favor to do something for me, that might not have been it. Oh, yeah, I understand. <laughs> for everyone who doesn't understand what the hell uh, we're talking about, um, on my Air America show, Norm was on every week, and we had this theme song for Norm, which was, Norm in the USA, Norm in the USA. Senior scholar at AI, conservative think tank, but he's a decent guy. You know, that that was what it was. And uh, you were by then you were not a conservative then. And you never really you never were. You were always just a scholar middle of the road. Yeah. And then at a certain point, you and Tom Mann were doing these books uh, and at one point finally just said, oh, fuck the Republicans, essentially, right? And <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, I will say, I, for a long time, when people asked, I would define myself the way with the term that Al Gore had used, which was raging moderate. But to be a moderate these days is very different even than what it was uh, 20 or 25 years ago. And I had a career where I worked a lot with Republicans uh, and Democrats. Then it became increasingly clear that the Republican Party had gone completely off the rails and uh, Tom and I decided to be very blunt about it. Yeah, and and you two wrote a couple books about that. Uh, what uh, the the first bestseller was? We wrote a book called The Broken Branch. Mm -hmm. um, then we did. It's even worse than it looks. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And then we did a, a paperback revised version of that, which I was able to get them to call it's even worse than it was. Okay, okay. This is, uh, we're going to talk about the election. We're not going to be doing yeah. book sales. Well, we could normal. go on and talk about my life, but that's, uh, <laughs> I think, okay. for another um, day. But the point is, you saw the, 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 this first books that you and Tom did about the Broken Branch were a long time ago. I mean, you... 2006 for that one. Yeah. 2012 for uh, It's Even Worse. And now it's just 
we were going into Tuesday, uh, very, you and I and a lot of people, uh, with, uh, for good reason, were scared. Yeah. It appears that we dodged a bullet, which is that what we thought was this would be a wave election and it didn't happen. But we still are, we could still lose the Senate. We could still, and, and we'll probably not have the House, right? I, I think it's a uh, 5% chance that Democrats somehow prevail uh, in the House. Uh, you know, I would say even we dodged not just a bullet, but a nuclear weapon. If there had been what so many confidently predicted, including way too many of our friends in mainstream journalism, uh, was a red tsunami, if that had happened, we would be in a just a catastrophic place in the country. And we avoided that in an election that was historically remarkable for uh, a, a democratic president and in a democratic presidency, not just avoiding major losses in the House and the Senate, but holding their own and picking up governorships, winning substantial numbers of seats in state legislatures, which is just unheard of, in a winning chambers. Now in Minnesota and in Michigan, Democrats controlling all the levers of power and even in sort of news that's very important, but not quite as stirring in Wisconsin, Tony Evers, the governor getting reelected, but also avoiding a supermajority of Republicans in uh, their legislature so they can't uh, render him ineffective. He still has a veto that he can use. It's a lot of good stuff out there, but the analogy I'm using now is it's like you're on a ship that sinks and you're rescued miraculously and you're incredibly relieved that you could have drowned or had eaten by a shark, but then you realize that you're now marooned on a desert island. So it's relief tempered by realism that we're still in a, in a, not great place in the country. Well, you know, um, when you get on a desert island, uh, sometimes you see like trees with fruit, you see. And so that to me would be the analogy there is if we keep the Senate, right? Absolutely. And we don't, we don't know. And then, and then sometimes there's fruit and then you eat the fruit and it just uh, makes you really sick. So (laughs) poison poison Uh, fruit. Yeah. Uh, But sometimes you eat the fruit and then see a lion staring at you uh, hungrily. Let's pursue this analogy. Uh, (laughs) But sometimes there's wild boar that are easy to hunt. And you have somebody who's on the ship is an amazing chef and firewood. And um, and then also there's a rescue party coming. Yeah, And sometimes you have a volleyball. That stop it. People are listening. are going, Wilson. stop it. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> Talk about what happened, the midterms. So, yes, we, we don't know whether we're going to control the Senate. We are waiting on Nevada and Arizona. And of course, we, we know we're going to have the runoff in, in Georgia. It's amazing to me that there's a runoff in Georgia. It's amazing to me that um, Herschel Walker is. It used to be that holding a uh, gun to your wife's head was uh, disqualifying. 
Now, it's not universally true that utterly unqualified or completely scary candidates for major public office are still in a position to win. Uh, Doug Mastriano, the Pennsylvania uh, governor, reactionist yep. um, in, in Pennsylvania, lost resoundingly. But what we see with Walker and Vance and so many others is part of what I would call the cancer of tribalism. Used to be not just, you know, putting a gun to the head of your wife, but remember when we had a Senate candidate in Indiana who basically said ridiculous things about uh, rape and abortion right? and was immediately condemned by Republicans all over the place and fundamentally disqualified from office. Now, it doesn't matter what you say or do in many cases. If you're a member of the tribe and uh, going against you, even criticizing you, would give aid and comfort to the enemy, you just ignore it and move on. And they lost two Senate seats. That uh, that was 12, and that yeah. was in Missouri and uh, and in Indiana. Yeah. And Donnelly won in Indiana, and uh, Claire McCaskill uh, won in, in Missouri that year. Because I, I, I think both of their opponents said something on the order of, you, you can't get pregnant if you're raped. Yeah. Now it's so tribal and so divided. But something to me that is very encouraging is that the deniers who ran for like, yeah. uh, for example, in uh, New Hampshire. Dan Bullduck running against Maggie Hassan. Yeah. And he was a horrible denier. He lost and he conceded. We went into this election not just concerned about the broader outcome, but also about having violence at the polls, having, uh, you know, an even more widespread use of intimidation with assault weapons, and then having some of the circuses that followed in 2020, including, of course, uh, armed people moving into uh, places where votes were being counted. Now, we're not out of the woods yet on that front in Arizona, but we had a very different dynamic this time. Not everybody, but the vast majority uh, of candidates who lost did offer concessions. And that's another part of uh, why it made such a bad night for Donald Trump. Yeah, because, I mean, going into this, my concern was that some of these deniers, especially ones running for secretaries of state, right, that they would win and that in the 2024 election would be completely compromised by these secretaries of state and governors and state legislatures. It appears now that I wouldn't say cauterized, but something happened this election where the the elections went smoothly. (laughs) The deniers that I've seen who've lost have said I lost. And it almost is like, okay, uh, you know what? That's not going to be what our our party runs on anymore. And that's really bad news for Trump because that's his whole premise, right? Yeah, it, it is. And it's been so interesting to watch that Trump before the election said, you know, if we sweep, you can thank me. If we don't, you can blame somebody else. Just classic Trump. Yeah. But the fact is that the <laughs> elites in the Republican Party now view him in a very different way. 
He won one race of significance. That was J.D. Vance, who, of course, he gave an, an endorsement because Vance came and kissed his ass. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the others, Mastriani, Oz, uh, Balduk, lost. Well, we, and, and of course, though, we, you know, the governor... In, in Arizona. We still have a couple of races that are yeah, we uh, have, uh, up in the air. Yeah, both, and in Nevada and, and Arizona in the Senate. So we're not quite sure about yeah. that. Yeah, But he's lost Rupert Murdoch. You know, the New York Post uh, headline uh, is, uh, with an uh, illustration, is Humpty Trumpty. My response to that was, oh, a lover's quarrel. But they're now, the Murdochs are playing up uh, DeSantis and playing down Trump. Trump is now facing multiple indictments and you have uh, his business operations taken over uh, the courts, allowing a equivalent of a special master to oversee all the operations there. He is probably on a path to have his Trump organization dissolved. These indictments are serious business for him. He's on a course to being interviewed by uh, following the subpoena of the January 6th committee. This is a bad time for Trump, but, you know, to go back not quite to the desert island analogy, if Trump disappears, Trumpism is still alive and well. And as you say, we're not out of the woods for 2024, even though most of the Worst candidates for secretary of state, uh, attorney general in states, attorneys general for governor lost. That's not uh, yet proven true in Arizona or Nevada, which are still very important states. And uh, the pathologies uh, out there with a Republican Party that's a cult and increasingly still, you know, look what happened with Paul Pelosi embraces violence or at least will not condemn it. When you look at the statements that Tommy Tuberville and Trump himself have made that are vilely racist and anti-Semitic, unchallenged by most of the other Republicans, and that the vast majority of Republicans in Congress are election deniers, in the House at least, and radical, and there are no moderates left. It's raining on that. uh, Well, I can't say it's raining. There is no rain or water on that desert island that we can get to at the moment. Well, it is a desert island after all. So we flogged that enough. Part of me now is kind of rooting for Trump a little bit. <laughs> First of all, the the uh, Republican elites, they didn't do what they needed to do at all. And none of the Republican office holders, everyone was so scared of Trump. And they've been enabling him this whole time. I still don't count him out no. at all. Is he going to announce? Is he going to announce uh, very soon? You know, he's uh, he said that there will be a very big announcement coming on the 14th, which just coincidentally happens to be the day he's supposed to uh, testify for the January 6th committee. And my guess is he will announce, even though a lot of people are going to tell him not to, as they talked him out of announcing on election eve. But he'll announce because he doesn't want the story to be that he appeared in front of the January 6th committee and uh, took the Fifth Amendment multiple times or, you know, lied. Uh, and it will be apparent that he lied. Now, he's not appearing before the committee, is he? No, no. But he's going to be, you know, talking to the staff at least. 
to the committee staff. Probably some of the members. Why Why is he even showing up for it? Does, does he have to or he doesn't want to end up with Bannon and the same? He didn't want to fight the subpoena would be my guess. But, you know, maybe he'll back out now that uh, the election is over. Yeah. But I, I, I don't count him out either because the fact is he still has strong following in that Republican base. And if all goes well, we will see the equivalent of a political cage match between Trump and DeSantis, who he called, of course, another one of his characteristic nicknames, and then threatened DeSantis that if he decided to run, that Trump had all kinds of dirt on him. So uh, if that happens, and then you get a real breach between the Republican base and the elites, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I mean, and... uh Trump is in large part responsible for Joe Biden having the best midterm outcome, yeah. you know, since 2002. And that was after 9-11 and after uh, Bush, of course, uh, got yeah. us into a war on, on false premises that worked for them in, in uh, 2002. It didn't work for them so much in six. Yeah. And then the other one was FDR. And so other than those two, yeah. uh, this is the third best. And, and that's, I think it's Trump, right? Yeah. And I'll tell you, if, if it hadn't been for the Supreme Court basically blowing up pretty much what remains of the Voting Rights Act, allowing outrageous racial gerrymandering in several states leading up to this election, if it weren't for Ron Lauder putting in huge sums of money to yep. uh, blow up the redistricting process in New York uh, state. If it weren't for the uh, Ohio Republicans ignoring multiple court orders uh, that their redistricting was illegal, Democrats would be celebrating a gain in seats in the House of Representatives. Yeah, we lost uh, like five seats in New York or something, and it was all, all I, I believe every one of those uh, Democrats who lost in those districts, including Josh Riley, who is my judiciary counsel and a great guy, and he, he performed eight points above Hochul, but still lost by less than two points. And, and that was crime. Yeah. They just hit crime, and it's so bogus what they were running and they were running obscene ads uh, against uh well against josh yeah. and but against everybody and it was these cookie cutter ads and fox news just ran crime 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 boy oh boy they 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 just fight so fucking dirty we talk a lot about the failures of uh messaging among democrats and you know you can have a number of failures in messaging and still have the best midterm <laughs> of a president in our lifetimes, basically. Um, but the crime issue was a lost opportunity. And I do think Hochul in particular blew that one in New York. I watched the debate that Val Demings did in Florida with little Marco Rubio. And she just eviscerated him on the crime issue by talking about guns. And talking about Uvalde and uh, the nightclub shooting in, in Florida and uh, uh, Sandy Hook and all of these other incidents and put the crime issue back in a different place because the crime issue fundamentally is a gun issue. And that gun issue resonates in New York and that Democrats didn't try to put Republicans on the defensive on that issue or set of issues, 
is maddening to me. And it might have made a difference in a couple of those races, including Josh's. One of the things we should point out, too, uh, is that these Republican states like Texas, like Florida, have higher crime rates than New York. Yeah. Uh, I was on CNN Election Day with Asa Hutchinson, and I was just too polite <laughs> to say this. But the homicide rate in Arkansas is three times that of New York. Yeah. Three times. Part of what pissed me off so much is that Josh and I did a lot of criminal justice stuff. You know this. Yeah. Time. We did crisis intervention training. Yeah. We, we funded the police. We funded yeah. the police. And they ran ads against him saying, Josh Riley's radical allies want to defund the police. And then they put defund the police over him, crawling over him. <laughs> And we just funded the police is what we did in our office. We got the bulletproof vests to uh, uh, cops all across the country. That's what I did. It, it was obscene. And, and I just now hate these Republicans so bad. 2010, when Citizens United, that, that was you can't fight all that dark money. And that was the that was a decision that set our uh, course that is so pernicious and so counter to our democracy. It and remember that Kennedy in that decision it was it was Justice yeah. Kennedy who wrote that. He said, "Well, the great thing is there'll be there'll be transparency. Yeah, right. There'll be disclosure. That's what he wrote in the opinion. And there isn't disclosure. I have a, a question, and this is." Well, uh, I'll ask you about this. Why? And I think I know the answer. It, it's why don't these justices, after they write an opinion that says the great thing about this <laughs> is that there'll be disclosure. Yeah. And then when there's no disclosure, why don't they go like, um, you know what? I think uh, we should revisit this, guys. But they never do that. It's like like uh, Shelby County. You know, Roberts goes, uh, well, I, you know, the southern states aren't doing this anymore, so it's okay. And Ginsburg said that's like uh, getting rid of your umbrella during a rainstorm because you're not wet. And right away, boom, bam, uh, North Carolina. Day. Yeah, the next day, North Carolina targets, uh, according to the Fourth Circuit, targets African-Americans with almost surgical precision. So then after that happens, why does Roberts go, gee, you know what? I was wrong. I think we know the answer. I know we know the answer. He is fundamentally dishonest. And yep. we're already seeing this. We saw it, you know, it, with uh, uh, Citizens United and then the couple of cases that followed. Uh, Steve Breyer wrote dissents in which he talked about what would happen to the campaign finance system in the aftermath of this decision. And Roberts dismissed it as fantasy. And, of course, everything that he wrote proved to be true. When Barack Obama, in his State of the Union message, said that this. Citizens United would open this up to foreign influence in our uh, campaigns, and Alito. San Alito mouth not true, he was lying. And of course, it is true. I wouldn't say he was just misled. He was lying because it was evident to anybody with any common sense that this was going to enable not just corporate funding, but funding by foreign corporations through their U.S. subsidiaries and through other kinds of subterfuge with dark money. So these are not justices who are aiming for reality. They're not justices who are actually 
originalists or who uh, you know believe what they claim to believe. John Roberts, who signed on to the Brnovich decision, another one involving voting rights, where the language of the law was clear. It could not have been more clear. And Sam Alito wrote an opinion which basically ignored that and wrote the law the way he wanted it written. And John Roberts signed on to it. So yeah, explain Brnovich. These people are, you know, it's a, it's a more technical or complicated decision, but it involves what thresholds you have, even with, you know, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that enable you to sue to uh, right wrongs. Um, and it's there. It's clear. And Sam Alito is the worst of them, I believe. Simply yeah, a section partisan. two is a section two is you can go to court. Yeah. To up to over it, because after they got rid of Section five, which is preclearance, which is the Justice Department would have to sign off on these uh, states and jurisdictions that uh, historically had had uh, suppressed votes of racial uh, minorities. After they got rid of that, then you have to go to court. And that's that's section two. And that's where the Fourth Circuit said North Carolina's state legislature targeted blacks with almost surgical precision. But that was uh, too late because it, it took two years for them to do that decision. And that's the result of getting rid of the preclearance. And now they're undermining section two. And it was Alito and then uh, Robert uh, signing on to it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Norm Ornstein. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. We're back with Norm Ornstein talking about the midterms. Let's 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 go to this election and and yeah. uh, Congress. What Congress, the House is going to look like. First of all, assuming that the Republicans do take the majority, it's going to be a much narrower majority than they had anticipated. And that I hear people saying that's going to give more power to the extremes. Um, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, and maybe Boebert loses, which is uh, be great. You know, I, what I'm seeing is I think it's more likely than not that she loses because most of the votes that are yet to be counted are from uh, the county that includes Aspen. Rich liberals. Yeah. Yay. 
(laughs) (laughs) So if they have a narrow majority, I keep hearing that that gives more power to the extreme uh, MAGA members in, in the Republican caucus. Can you explain that? And also what you anticipate will be because you're you watch Congress. That's that's something you do. Yeah, uh, that's part of your 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 thing. That's a, that's <laughs> what the kids call it, the thing. It's a thing. Uh, that's what, that's your thing. Uh, what do you see if uh, the, if we have this narrow majority uh, in in the House? So there are a couple of things to keep in mind. The first is if you have a majority that is only you know two, three, four, or five, it obviously poses enormous challenges because any little group of two, three, four, or five then holds the balance of power. It's not much different from the problem that uh, Chuck Schumer has had with an evenly divided Senate with no support coming from any Republican, where then if you have people who want to use their leverage, as Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema have, you're in a, a pickle. Having said that, if the Republicans had a 20-seat majority compared to a two-seat majority. I don't see a huge difference here, Al, Mm -hmm. because it's not like you have a party with a wide range of those that includes some moderates, some institutionally-minded conservatives, Mm -hmm. some people who really genuinely do put country over party, and then a group of radicals. They're almost all either radicals or complete cowards. There are no moderates. There are no institution-minded conservatives that will be there in the next Congress. Those either retired, like Fred Upton of Michigan, or were defeated in primaries, like Liz Cheney and uh, Herrera Butler, were redistricted, as Adam Kinsinger was, but they're gone. Uh, In 1973, I came to Washington in 69, 1973 the equivalent of the Freedom Caucus was created. It was called the Republican Study Committee. And it was the conservative Republicans who wanted their own conference group to try and influence their party. Uh, It started with a small number of members, then it grew. And by the time Barack Obama became president, the Republican Study Committee had a healthy majority of all the Republicans in the House. 2015, the Freedom Caucus was created because the right-wing caucus wasn't right-wing enough. Now you're seeing a few groups emerge that believe that the Freedom Caucus isn't right-wing enough. We're going to have a Republican Party, whether the majority is 2 or 20, that is dominated by Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, and a leader in Kevin McCarthy, who is the weakest and most feckless leader I have seen in more than 50 years of being immersed in this institution. And he will be powerless to stop them from doing all kinds of radical things and to stay as speaker, where his leash will be very, very short. It will mean giving a green light to impeaching Biden, Mayorkas, Garland, probably Blinken, among others to having multiple ongoing investigations of Hunter Biden and his laptop of the January 6th committee members. He will let them take probably Adam Schiff, Jamie Raskin, and all the others off of their committees 
with no reason other than spite. He will try and use investigations to tie up Biden. But what I fear the most is that he will let them use the power that they have over money, the power of the purse, to create a debt ceiling crisis and to cut off funding for the Justice Department for all of its investigations, for the Centers for Disease Control, because they don't like what happens with pandemics and don't want to prepare for the next one, for uh, the Department of Homeland Security and uh, HHS, which uh, it also, of course, still runs all of the facilities for asylum seekers on the border, cutting off funding for the IRS, for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, for a whole host of agencies. And he'll let all of that stuff happen. And it's going to be incumbent upon the Democrats in the House and Senate from this point on through January 2nd to head off as much of that as they possibly can. I'm not sure even with all that, that McCarthy will be able to stay as speaker for any length of time if he achieves that post. I'm I'm glad you're saying this because I've been hearing this thing about, oh, if it's a narrow majority, then the the crazies will have. They're all there's a lot of crazies. crazies. They're all crazy (laughs) except for the cowards. And uh, and let me talk about the debt ceiling, because I've been there. Right. We did this in 2011 and it was frightening. Yeah. And people have to understand what that is. And the debt ceiling is, is we can borrow so much money and we set that ceiling and we have to, <laughs> we, we change the debt ceiling all the time. We've done it all throughout our history. And so we can continue to borrow more money. In 2011, they held a gun to our head and said, we're going to go past the debt ceiling. We're not, we're not going to, we're not going to raise it and we're going to default. On our debt, essentially, which would have thrown the world economy into crisis. And so they use that to put a gun to Obama's head and our head in the Senate and in the House to uh, do sequester and cut spending and all that stuff. Right. That's the history. Uh, They're threatening to do that again. Now, part of the, the response to that would be to raise the debt ceiling during the lame duck. Right. That would be one way. And is that going to happen? Would that be possible? You remember, of course, as you do back in 2011, we came very close and we were saved in part by Boehner and McConnell. Boehner, I think, because he understood that this would be catastrophic for the country. McConnell, because he thought it would be catastrophic for the Republican Party. And they barely kept us from going over the cliff. Uh, It was still destructive. And, uh, you know, we've had economic uh, forecasters who said that just getting close to default cost taxpayers $18 billion or more in increased interest costs. Yeah, because our we lost our AAA rating for for our treasuries. Exactly. Now you have a leader much weaker than John Boehner, who was not exactly the strongest leader in the history of the country because he had all of these crazies to deal with. And now there are many more crazies. The the challenge that I see is, and I think McConnell will want to go along with taking this off the table now because he also understands uh, the consequences, which are far more dire now because of the shaky global economy. But If you're going to raise the debt ceiling enough to get us through at least the next two years, 
you're talking about raising it by multiples of trillions, and I'm not sure you have the votes for that. Mm-hmm. The better way to go is the ironically named McConnell rule, which is that the Treasury Secretary acting for the president unilaterally raises the debt ceiling, and Congress can vote a joint resolution blocking it, but the president can then veto that, and that means all you effectively need is one-third plus one of one house. You probably can only do that through reconciliation unless Mitch McConnell can get nine other Republicans to go along with him and institutionalize it permanently. Maybe he will do that, anticipating that this could come back to haunt a future Republican president. And I got to believe, even if there would be some questions about whether this would fit neatly in a fashion that the parliamentarian could accept it, the McConnell rule, if we are facing the prospect of a default that would send the globe into a deep depression, it's still hard for me to imagine that a parliamentarian on very narrow technical grounds would say, ah, that's too bad, but you can't do this. I think you could persuade a parliamentarian to let it happen. And I hope that's what they'll do. And I've been, you know, pushing them to try and do this uh, long before now, instead of just having these temporary increases in the debt ceiling. Let's just make it very clear for my audience uh, what the debt ceiling is. The debt ceiling is there's a limit to how much we can borrow. And we're going to hit that that ceiling. When are we going to hit that? Sometime next year? Sometime next year, and you can you know push it off a little bit, but it definitely happens within the first half of next year. Okay. So, and we told you the consequences if we don't do that is because the, the dollar is the world's default currency, the world's reserve currency, it puts the dollar in, in jeopardy and everything unravels. So that's the gun to the head. That's why Obama had to give up so much. What happened last time on, on the debt ceiling is a year ago, it will be in December, is that McConnell said, okay, to the Democrats, you have to do it. You have to do it. And so the Republicans allowed it in, to be done in, by, you know, in reconciliation, which means that it could be done with 51 votes, including, of course, the vice president. And so that's what kind of we're hoping happens, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I think just I'm just praying for that because otherwise, and they've threatened to uh, cut Medicare and, and Social Security using that to do that, right? Exactly. So that's, you know, they're, they're going to make a set of demands, likely non-negotiable demands that are all utterly unacceptable, not just to Biden, but for the country. You know, back in 2011, you'll remember Jason Chaffetz, who was then uh, the darling of the Tea Party, now is the darling of uh, Fox News, said, um, we were serious about this. We would have taken it right over the cliff. And, you know, he was in the minority then. Now you have people who make Jason Chaffetz look like a global statesman. Okay, well, there's that. So we're talking about investigations. Uh, of course, of Hunter Biden, but you're talking about impeachments of uh, like Garland and and they'll do it, won't they? That is a given if they have a majority, no matter how narrow that majority is. And, you know, that'll be destructive 
And it can be very destructive because they can use subpoenas and, and tie up cabinet members, keep them from doing their own jobs, not to mention that the entire legislative agenda of anything significant comes to a halt for two years. Their ability to cut off aid to Ukraine, to basically muck up uh, the uh, State Department's funding for diplomacy, to wreak havoc with the fundamentals of carrying out policy. And then let's come back to the court for a minute. You know, if we end up with this situation, the only way in which you can effectively keep the country running and make national policy is through executive action. But we have a Supreme Court that's on the verge of basically rendering much of that executive action unconstitutional. So, you know, there there are going to be headaches ahead for Joe Biden, even though he uh, had an extraordinary night on Tuesday. Yeah, and I think people should should realize that that this is uh, they're they're taking the uh, the, the house is uh, going to make this a shit show uh, for the next couple of years, and who knows that may help us tremendously um, in 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 twenty four, and you know Biden is looking like. He's looking better than he's looked in a long time, right? In terms of those prospects. Yeah, I, you know, and I think he has a spring in his step. And I, I tell you, I, you know, as I watched him give his speech on democracy, which was, you know, trashed by so many in the mainstream media, it still rankles me to look at comments from journalists like Shane uh, Goldmacher of the Times who tweeted, uh, you know, I talk about democracy when, you know, you've got the issues that people care about, like inflation and crime, as if the direct threat to our system with Trump, Kerry Lake and others saying, boy, if we take power, journalists are going to be the first ones to go. They don't even see this or can't react to it. But that was a terrific speech on his part. And the speech that he gave after the election was terrific. He is, I think, renewed in some ways even though these challenges emerge. And if he is able to take the fight to McCarthy and Jordan and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ron Johnson and Mitch McConnell, not in his nature to take on Congress, but to really demonstrate using the most effective bully pulpit, even if he's not the most effective at using it, what the country faces with these radicals having some levers of power. If he's able to do that, I think it will work extraordinarily well for him and for Democrats. I, I, I certainly hope so. So we've got Nevada and we've got Arizona. Wait, that, that's going to take another week, you think, at least? Yeah, I, I would think. I think Arizona, where uh, the oh, Kelly the looks like election is still hanging by a thread. I think Mark Kelly is in very strong shape. Whatever other votes are out there, he has a margin of ninety five thousand, and I don't see any feasible path uh, for that disappearing. Nevada, I think we're going to know certainly within the week. Let's say this: that if Democrats are able to hold on, if Cortez Mastow holds on in Nevada, that'll mean fifty votes at least. And I think it changes the dynamic in Georgia. Yeah, because uh, then there's no reason for <laughs> there is yeah. the, the Republican voters will not be saying, 
Okay, I got to vote for Herschel Walker because it's about control of the Senate. Now it isn't. And there's got to be a little bit of going like, I I, I can't. (laughs) I'm not going to show up. You know what I mean? (laughs) Don't you think? Absolutely. And there's one other thing that most people don't recognize. A 51-49 Senate is dramatically different in an important respect from a 50-50 Senate. Well, committee. uh, Exactly. Right now, the committees are evenly divided. Mm -hmm. And that means you, in some instances, and this is what uh, caused the uh, demise of the confirmation of Sarah Bloom Raskin uh, to the Fed, uh, extraordinarily well qualified. Committee rules are such that you need at least one minority member there to form a quorum. Yep. And they refused to show up. And it also meant that you had many instances of confirmations deadlocked with even numbers, which meant a lot more time and effort required on the floor to actually get them to a vote for confirmation. Well, they were able to do that. It was more time. But the committees, because the committee rules are, are set by the majority, but if you, but you, need, a, you need a minority member to vote. Because yeah. it's on like ten ten on a committee, and all the Republicans, you know, just won't. And you know, you risk losing one Democrat. But if you have fifty one forty nine, you're going to have an advantage on all of the committees. That's right. That's right. And that will make a difference. It'll make a significant difference. It'll, it'll make a huge difference. But don't tell the Republicans in Georgia. <laughs> If they, yeah, we'll, we'll save that till after uh, December 6th. Yeah, uh, they're not listening. Yeah, uh, they're not listening to us. It's too bad because, yeah. uh, you know, uh, if Republicans listen to this, they go, you know what? That Franken. You could change the country uh, dramatically if we, if we had a big Republican audience. For, if we just know, required them to listen. Compelling arguments. That would be a different kind of system. Though. Yeah. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. 
Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.